From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Black Friday outages causing problems for NatWest and RBS, Goldman puts the brakes on the Marcus UK expansion and Roger Federer breaks the Swiss Mint. All this and much, much more on today's show. Before we start, do you love fintech? Yeah, we know you do. Uh, are you struggling to keep up to date with everything that's going on? Well, great news. We're relaunching the 11FS newsletter, and we want to give you, the financial services nerds out there, the disruptors and curious fools, idiots, whatever you are, lovely people, all of you, a snack-sized roundup of the biggest, biggest stories of the week. And uh, every Friday, you'll receive a summary in our own 11FS style, along with interesting blogs and so much more straight to your inbox. So you can subscribe at 11FS.com forward slash newsletter. All right, let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode 381 of Fintech Insider. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Adam Davis. How are you doing? I'm a broken man, sorry. I'm Why? a broken man. Well, see, it's been a busy, busy week. A couple of days ago, Fintech Connect. Yeah. Live. Very nice. Fantastic show. Um, thanks to everyone who uh, who organized that from Fintech Connect. Last night was After Dark. Yeah. We all know what happens after after uh, dark. Well, uh, you have to be there to find out. Uh huh. Touche, uh. touche. Uh, and then yesterday was my two-year-old birthday. Wow. So sandwich in between the two. Happy birthday, Mini Davis. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's listening. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> clearly. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, slightly broken. Good stuff. Yeah. How are you? Uh, yeah, not too bad. Um, I had a it's similar week, actually. Exhausting, exhausting week, but got some good news earlier. It seems like the guys over at Grab have launched their Grab Pay MasterCard, mm. and we helped them out with that and behind the scenes. So I'm really excited for those guys. So shout out to those guys. Um, but we're not alone. We're joined by some amazing, amazing guests. Um, making his FinTech Insider News debut, we have Andrew Budd, who's founder and CEO at iProof. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm absolutely top of the world, as well as you'd expect a man whose Christmas party for the company to ended late last night. Wow. Well done for being here. Congratulations. Just, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just where you want to be. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, making some welcome returns. Of course, we have uh, Livia Benisti, who's Global Head of Business and AML at Banking Circle. How are you doing, Livia? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for being back. Thank you so much for having me back. Yeah, welcome back. And of course, the one, the only... Mr. Jamie Freaking Campbell, now CEO of Fronted. How are you it, doing, Jamie? What has anything going on with you lately? It sounds very impressive, but I feel like calling yourself a CEO of a company of four people is is slightly that's blown. CEO. It's slightly overblowing it a little bit. Well, um, you've just crashed the dreams of hundreds. <laughs> of <laughs> it could have been anything at this point. Twenty to thirty year olds everywhere. <laughs> oh well. I Remember, mean, you're already twenty percent of the size that WhatsApp was when it sold for nineteen billion dollars. Ah, well, you know, luckily we're. Yeah, God, yeah, that's really depressing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, no, I've obviously, I mean, yeah, I've had a lot going on the last uh, last couple of weeks, so it's it's been a bit of a bit of a roller coaster. Um, I can tell you about what I've been up to, about what, what about what Fronted is doing. Just where can people find out more so they can look up for it? Okay, you can go to fronted.xyz. Wow, you went with the whole uh, XYZ thing, like alphabet, no, top-level domain nerdy. I, yeah. I like that. Alrighty, um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the venture though? Because I felt like that was that was too short. Give me give me a little bit more. You've left me wanting more. Okay, yeah, sure. So we are building a product that is going to make renting suck less. Um, and our initial kind of stab into this market is we're going to pay for people's rental deposits for them. Um, it's a huge upfront cost for a lot of people. Uh, there's a large part of the market that is, you know, cash poor. Um, and, you know, it gives us a really good way of, of engaging people right at the start of a, of, of a rental, of a new rental journey. So instead of paying two grand for your rental deposit, there you can pay um, a kind of a small amount to us each month uh, instead. And then from there, we're going to offer a whole bunch of services just to kind of act more of a buffer between the, the landlord and the, and the tenant when it comes to financial services um, and additional uh, services for things like gas and electricity when, when they move in. It's concierging moving. I like it. It's the whole exactly. moving experience sorted out. And uh, for anybody listening that's had to rent in, in any part of the UK or pretty much anywhere around the world, that can be really, really painful. So it sounds like a much needed service. Thank you. Uh, already, um, let's get to the first story this week. Uh, first story comes from City AM, and this is about NatWest and RBS suffering outages on Black Friday. The company's mobile and online banking platform suffered intermittent problems from 9 a.m. to 5:30 p.m. on a pretty 
pretty key shopping day. Uh, bank line of service for business finances was also affected. Eight in 10 complaints concerned um, NatWest's online banking services and nearly one in five regarding mobile. Uh, many customers accused the bank of failing to be transparent about the extent of the problem and others expressed frustration that the outage had happened on both a payday and a major shopping day. It was that combo that's the dream. Um, the outage follows a which survey that named RBS the joint worst bank for outages with 18 service interruptions in a one-year period. Uh, any thoughts on this one from the group? I was fascinated by this statistic that w- that 20% of the complaints were mobile banking, but 80% were for online. We live in a world in which people are going are using their mobiles for practically everything. There are mobile, mm. but there are organ- banks that are 100% mobile, and yet 80% of their complaints were 80% of their problems were uh, were to do with online. Now that could be because that it was their online platform that suffered disproportionately, or maybe that says something about um, the, the rate of uptake of NatWest's mobile solution. Yeah, the nature of the customer base of NatWest is perhaps less phone-based, more online. Speaking as a NatWest customer myself. So I was a, I'm was i a NatWest customer. I didn't even know it was down. Mm. I, I found out on our internal Slack channel. Yeah. I'm like, oh, God. Um, yeah, but I have to say, if I was going to complain, I think, about NatWest, I'd probably do it via the app. So by the app, by virtue of the app being down, I had no way to complain. Oh, interesting. So, uh, yeah, what do you think of this, Jamie? I mean... People who are smarter than me in terms of the infrastructure of banks will will kind of understand this. But for, in my from my opinion, this feels like it's happening more often. You know, TSB, RBS, a whole host of other banks who are kind of experiencing these technical outages. I know the FCA is is kind of stepping in to be a little bit more um, uh, disciplinary when it comes to uh, these these outages. But I'm kind of left in the middle, thinking like, why is this? happening and why does it seem like it's happening more now than than ever but let's be fair though um facebook goes down um google's gone down twitter goes down like it's it's not a unique thing to banking there's is it is it something about how important banking is to people that we that we were up in arms about it or is it is it especially on a payday especially on a black friday has that made it more severe maybe i think if whatsapp goes down it you kind of hear about it remember when whatsapp went down shortly after it was taken over there was a huge fuss about that and i think that maybe that's because it's the most commonly used communication platform in this country um there was if a parliamentary WhatsApp, sorry go ahead uh, i was gonna say but if whatsapp goes down the consequences are less than exactly. payday you know yeah. i can't see my money and and do you think maybe it's possible as well that people were um trying to on payday or oh, now i've got to pay all my bills and start moving my money around mm. like that's the day i go start segmenting it you could, so in this in this particular outage i think payments were still working so this is this was specific to the online banking platform that they've got. Sure, um, but how do I how do I go make know. those payments if I can't access the online platform? Oh yeah, well that is true. So uh, the payments it, that are automatically set up, fine. Sure, but yeah. for those people that do the, like the and now I go pay this thing and now I go pay that thing on on payday. Yeah, I mean it speaks to a rather complicated architecture because normally it's the payments that go down. So the core payment engine will have problems with uh, peak loads, but this is actually the online banking platform and mobile banking platform. But um, that's probably that's what's that's what's done it. Was was there any link? I mean, I couldn't find it um, in the in the article to it being Black Friday and it being payday. Is that like was this a, like a load issue or yeah. is this just or is it a you know, did they push an update at the wrong I think it was something to do day. with pushing the outfit and change management. So a lot of the press that came out was saying that um, change management procedures in banks, it was similar to the TSB thing, right? Do you do a big bank change, big bang change of something or an incremental one? And I think there was um, a Treasury Committee last week that talked about how um, banks are being let down by the operational risk inherent in their legacy infrastructure, which I found really interesting. Well, and I think it's not just um, the the infrastructure that's the problem. It's changing how you do change. Because I think each time this happens, people get, they add more and more complexity to their procedures around change, making change harder to do and doing more changes at once. So we really, really as... don't want this to fail. So let's do it less. Yeah. Now, oh, it failed. Now let's do it even less and be even more careful. Yeah. And actually, that's kind of, it's counterintuitive, but you sort of need to do the opposite. Yeah. You need to do much more change. And so instead of reducing the risk of failure, you need to reduce the impact of failure so that you get these tiny, tiny failures that can happen all of the time, but nobody even notices because it was this one little thing in the corner, but the system keeps running. I, I must admit, I had a frisson of sympathy with the, the technology team at NatWest. In a previous company, we used to compare some of the change management to, being, to, trying to, to change the engine 
engines on an aircraft in flight. Mm -hmm. As you say, the moment if you're forced by your internal uh, testing and quality management procedures and also compliance procedures to do these big changes in uh, to be in uh, in flight, even if it's done in the middle of the night. It's a huge risk, and if you're burdened with a lot of very complex legacy, which God forbid, no, not any nobody understands the full extent of. It's you, mad you because the more you add testing, the more you add QA, the more you try and prevent the change, the more complex you make the change. So it becomes like this vicious circle, and then the regulator starts saying, "Hey, you know, like the, these outages can't happen anymore." So you hire even more testers, and you make the changes even less frequent and more expensive as well. Absolutely. You know, the, when 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 fear increases in something like this, then your default is let's mitigate the fear by bringing in more experts or people with you know, more information than, than than they do. And, you know, causing the projects in these in these organizations to become massively more expensive than they already than they already are. Which pushes up the OPEX. Which, yeah. And OPEX is already a problem when you've got the legacy technology that you can only change very slowly. And now there are competitors in the market that can move uh, at a different speed, which brings me swiftly to our next story, which is about Goldman. Um, so this story is from Finextra, and apparently Goldman are putting the brakes on the Marcus expansion in the UK. Apparently it doesn't want its retail brand to surpass £25 billion in deposits. At that point, it would be required to ring-fence its retail in intake from its investment banking division. And right now it's believed that Goldman's only halfway towards the threshold, uh, and it's unclear if they're going to pass it in 2020 or not. And of course, we know Marcus launched its UK operation in 2018, offering a 1.5% introductory interest savings rate, uh, and it's now been reduced to 1.45 for new customers. So um, they've currently got more than 300,000 customers. Um, you know, they've they built kind of almost greenfield, quite different to a lot of banks, but they had a big brand. They're in an interesting space, Jimmy. It is. It's not a it's, it's a weird one because it's not a bad problem to have, you know, especially when you look at the rate of growth and mm -hmm. kind of deposits that they've taken on. When you compare it to its, I guess its nearest competitor of of in the challenger bank space of of like an atom, for instance, yeah. it's uncomparable. You know, this is a vast amount of money being acquired very very quickly. That's a big deposit book in a short yeah. space of time. So if they're halfway there, twelve and a half. What are billion. they doing with the, what? Are, one of the things. What, what are they doing with the money? Because are they are they going to lend? Are they? Well, yeah. I mean, they're going to lend, but. Well, they, I, they can lend seen, elsewhere in their, on their balance sheet, right? So it's basically reducing their cost of funding for all lending and financial markets activity. It's only positive there was, liquidity. Yeah. If only there was a new trip. lending opportunity with a really cool young fintech. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got me. The, my, see that? See, I set it all up. I told you I was only going to talk about Fronted, and I, and I managed to get from Goldman Sachs to Fronted. Damn you, that was charming. <laughs> Do you believe this? Do you really think they're going to put the brakes on this? Yeah. Yeah, I think they'll have to. Yeah. I think they'll diversify, but they'll definitely have to. I mean, I, I, stealing the words straight out of Des McKay's mouth, he's made saving sexy again. And uh, and I think the attractiveness of Marcus, the access to the platform, um, I actually only got on on 1.45, by the way, so I'm very gutted. Mm. I missed they the, the access to the platform. Have they got an app yet? Because I think if we talk about the attractiveness of the platform, it was 1.5% rate savings. That was what was so attractive about it. And I think... I don't think there was anything particularly more brilliant than that at the time. It was a great savings rate at a time where we're being offered nothing. I think there was a couple of other things. One, they weren't quite top of the league table, but their onboarding took five minutes legit. Yeah, it that's was, true. It, that was rapid. And my yeah. mum could do it. And, which, and is... which, which, so there's something to be said for it's not the way, it's not just what you do, it's the way you do it. Mm -hmm. So that was phenomenal. And then secondly, the linked account thing was was a masterstroke. So by linking your account, you get around a whole bunch of PSD2 stuff and a whole bunch of other regs that basically mean that um, they, they, dramatically reduced their reg overheads um, and simplified the proposition as well and they were able to get it. Do you think people fast. knew that when they became customers? Absolutely or do you think they not. saw 1.5% savings? Yeah, no no doubt the 1.5% savings was a huge part of the marketing push, but also so was Goldman. So was Marcus by Goldman, yep. which was really thought about. It was well put in premium. I think this is just really well executed. It's, yeah. I think to, to say it was just the rate is oversimplifying it. There were a lot of other people out there with that rate that got nowhere near this growth. But remember also yeah. that they had no legacy. So they didn't have any issues with any legacy platforms, legacy saving platforms. They had no brand in this space. So they could almost go greenfield. They've also got a very strong brand anyway. But they could go greenfield in this space. And then actually, because of that, the cost of service lower, which means they can charge a 
better rate. So I think there's a um, it's a fascinating story in terms of the background to this and how it was all set up and how it was mobilized and how long it's taken because it's been super, super quick and the expansion's been incredible. Is, is it also true that they that they're that they're releasing a, a robo advisor? Uh, so we covered the story last, last week, week and uh, the week before that they were looking at potentially acquiring, uh, I think it was E-Trade, um, and that's on the back of the TD Ameritrade and somebody else um, kind of yeah. uh, coming together. Because that's interesting as well, you yeah. know, just kind of providing the, you know, additional services beyond just their core as a, as a kind of a, a bolt-on, much more of like a, a marketplace kind of vibe. And you can see it evolving that way, could yeah. you? They've been, I mean, they've been investing in companies all over the place. I think yeah. they invested in nothing, they invested in yeah, Bug, yeah. which was my my old company. So. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. They're, they're, they're provider, active yeah. to say the least, and I think it, it also, if you look at JP Morgan, they're making a lot of plays in this space. I think the 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 especially in the US markets is a much more well rounded product set, and it's on, on a greenfield platform. Um, and then you start to think, you know, how does this become a full service offering where you know, rates have been challenged, where investment banking is not as profitable from an ROE standpoint as it used to be? This diversifies them quite substantially. Um, but we covered uh, Goldman a lot and I'm sure we'll come back to them again but the next story this week uh, comes from the Financial Times and this is about Zopa securing a last minute license renewal last of the late breakers this is so good. <laughs> yeah, you like this one? Um, so last year, the uh, UK peer-to-peer lender received a conditional license from the FCA in an attempt to launch its own challenger bank. That license was set to expire on Thursday, but the company raised £140 million in the nick of time. Uh, to fund its bank, Zopa had previously raised two rounds of £60 million from old and new investors, and the company said it will launch a fixed-term savings account and a credit card. Um, the money management app is also expected. I love this. Drama. Fintech drama, right <laughs> to the wire. You know, my dad was talking to me about this, you know, and, yeah. you know, Zopa is one of those those brands where, I, you know, I've seen it from its peer-to-peer days, and I've seen the, the, the CEO talk um, about how they're planning to transition from peer-to-peer to, you know, more of a traditionally accepted banking uh, model. But I feel like this story really kind of stood out really you know in the fact that this is that this was a, a genuine kind of like seat your seat of the seat of your pants moment for for this for this company yeah sure it emphasizes just how difficult it is i guess to 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 do a startup and to do it well and to do it at scale here's a brand which is i suppose within the fintech bubble i guess is very very well known uh, it's got an incredible reputation and it's doing some really really good stuff and yet still you're talking you know matter of days before you know something pretty catastrophic would have happened do we think that peer to peer lending's had its day because uh, there's something interesting here about why did they apply for the banking license well i think one of the one of the things that i still kind of struggle to understand and probably someone knows here if you are a, if you have a peer to peer model um, based on kind of matching investors with with lenders and you become a bank and you have a balance sheet are you at risk of taking the best loans for yourself and leaving your investors with the worst ones like how do you square that potential conflict of of lending when you mm-hmm. you have obligations to one party you obviously have obligations to your own business and you have customers who want an outcome at the end but my understanding and there's a bunch of ft alphaville investigations into this sort of stuff is they've been funding 80 percent of their lending from the financial markets anyway so now they're looking at cost of funds mm. so having a banking license means i can take deposits which reduces my cost of funds yeah so they've sort of found another way to becoming a bank i could be wrong on this but what were your thoughts of um I don't think that moving into a banking license is necessarily down to the fact that peer-to-peer has perhaps had its day. I don't. I think peer-to-peer having its day is for certain lenders in certain circumstances where the negative news and the, the reputational risk around it was higher. You know, Wonga, for example. Zopa, I think, as Adam pointed out, have a, a slightly different um, reputation maybe. Maybe I'm pushing it a bit. I'm not sure. Mm. Um, I don't think it's necessarily because that's... An end at the end of the industry, but there is definitely more you can do, and they've got higher ambitions. Um, we're not done yet with new entrants into the into the banking license model in, with the FCA in the UK. That's um, interesting. They've got 14 years of experience in financial markets. They've got data. They've got customers. They've got loyalty. They've got a name. They've got a brand. They've got more than 
Starling and Monzo had four years ago. That's interesting. So do you think the last-minute scramble, Andrew, is going to hurt or help them on this? Do you think it's a good news story or a bad news story? Um, I think for sophisticated players, it's neither. Um, A deadline has a wonderful uh, effect in focusing the minds. (laughs) Uh You think about those European Commission negotiations that somehow always manage to happen to close just at the deadline. I imagine that there were months of negotiation behind this, and actually it was the force of the deadline that caused it to close. Um, it wasn't that I'm sure that they didn't wake up a couple of days beforehand and go, oh, look, we've got yeah. a, we're going to lose our license. We'd better get on with it. But if, you're at a deadlock, if you're at a negotiation deadlock and a deadline is hard, the often the, 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 the loser in the scenario is the person who requires the capital, you know. And so, you know, part of it is, um, you know, this is a kind of a, you know, a last minute deal arrangement, which has saved this company. But like, you know, at what t- on what terms? Yeah, you know, I was wondering what, happened, what they had like, to give away. What did for you? It. What's you know what's happened to secure this? What did the other company that pulled out? You know, what, mm. what, what was what was not right for them? And therefore, like, you know, how is how is how is Zopa gonna? Um, Kind of how buoyant are they going to be going forward with this with this new arrangement? I don't know if there's this, been any kind of more public details. Quite, the numbers on the valuation on the revaluation of uh, Augmentum stake show that this was a down round. Mm-hmm. So I push came to shove. That. That so this was Augmentum fintech owns six point two percent stake in Zopa on Wednesday. It cut the valuation of the stake from twenty two million to eleven point seven, which is a forty seven percent drop. So yeah, that's a really significant drop mm. at the deadline. And that's a piece that, that that I'd miss, and it was in the show notes. So good catch, Andrew. I think that's that's a really good point. We did all read the show notes. Uh, yes, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Sorry. the last bullet point was the one I forgot to read, and it was the most important piece. Um, Livian, you said something really interesting there, which is we haven't seen the last of new challenger banks. Do you, do you think that there's going to be more in different shapes or is this people coming from different angles at it now? It's a great question. Um, should have put more thought into the comment before I said it perhaps. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I think that we're going to see some entrants from the US um, coming over here. I think we... These Who? challenger banks coming over here, Who? taking our customers. Who would do <laughs> it? Yeah. Might I see Chime? Who would... Oh, no. Robinhood are already on the way. The States to go. Yeah, Robinhood. We've got a lot of robo-investment advisors coming over. There's nothing to say they won't expand. I think our regulatory environment is substantially more friendly um, than what it takes to go ahead in the yeah, US. And if you look yeah. at the US market, it's really interesting, Livia, because you've got a market in which most of the challenger banks are still sitting on somebody else's license yep. and not able to attract as much interchange. Um, they're not able to lend as cleanly and as profitably. So they just can't make a profit in the same way that you could if you had a license in the UK. So the path here could be doable. I saw that uh, Robinhood have just passed 10 million customers in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are here in on UK shores looking to licensing. And they've tried a couple of times and a couple of different configurations to get the licensing to work in the US directly and nobody seems to be able to crack that nut so I think that's an interesting it's point. really really difficult especially with the kind of the fintech charter and, and how much it was being it's been prosecuted left right and center and now it's down again um, I think what's also interesting is the licensing that a lot of the challenges are using are not banks most people would ever have heard of they're small community Some banks bank that are trying to be super evolve. innovative that's really interesting. And I've heard a couple of stories of people getting to kind of the last mile and the bank being like, oh, no, wait, actually, this is quite hard. I think I'm going to stop. Yeah. And um, it's going to be interesting to see which banks almost become the the innovative ones to go to. Is it going to be more than Cross River? Is this going to expand? I think that's interesting. But coming here is, is, is a different environment. I think the last time I was actually on the podcast, we talked about American um, fintech coming over here and what that was going to entail. So I, I definitely see that that happening to an extent. Whether it will happen locally and there'll be more new challenges locally, I probably should definitely have thought about that more before right. I said it. <laughs> well, this will run and run. I'm sure there's going to be more banks in the future, according to Olivia. Well, we'll be back very shortly. Let's take a quick break while you hear from our sponsors. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. We are 
hiring. Check out 11fs.com forward slash careers to find your dream job. Uh, we have open roles in consulting, product design and tech, research, Ben Parking, Foundry, Pulse, Ops, and the USA. Um, check out our vacancies on 11fs.com forward slash careers now. We're hiring about 15 to 20 people a month. If you want to come have fun um, and just change the fabric of financial services, we're the place to do it. So get in touch. Alrighty, on with the show. Um, this comes from Finextra and also comes from Witch. Um, this is about First Direct topping the charts twice in a week. So it turns out they're, they're dropping the hits. Um, on Friday, the retail bank topped a customer experience chart compiled by data analysis firm Kantar. And then on Saturday, um, Witch named um, First Direct uh, Standard Current Account the best in Britain. Um, but there's a catch. Uh, Kantar's index only includes incumbent banks, Boo. which also disqualified previous winner Monzo for not signing on to the authorized push payment scam code. Holy technicality, Batman. Um, uh, had which included Monzo, it would have placed third behind both First Direct and Starling, which is an important point. Both First Direct and Starling had beat them fairly and squarely, it looks like. So what did you think when you saw this one, Adam? Uh, I was actually wondering how they came up with the definition of uh, what the best customer experience index looks like. And I did actually, I must confess, I did read the show notes. So I did go to their website and I still couldn't get it. Mm -hmm. um, so the metrics that go into this in terms of what actually uh, is a, a a better customer experience from one bank to another mm -hmm. and the differentiation that they've seen between First Direct, Starling and Monzo. Very interesting. I don't know the answer to that, but I'd be very interested to find out if anyone knows. Writers, Met write into the show if you have uh, inside information. <laughs> Methodologies are weird. Um, and, and I guess like this is the hard thing with research is you do surveys and you can ask them about individual features and you can create a way in which everybody can be a winner. Um, so like which, for instance, gives people scores based on customer service, the application process, communication, transparency of charges, handling of complaints, service in branch. So if you don't have a branch, you get zero stars. Telephone banking, if you don't do telephone banking, you get zero stars. Online banking, if you don't do online banking, you get zero stars. Um, and then benefits, uh, which if you compete on transparent rates, then your benefits are probably not going to be the best. But that's probably a fair score. So a few things. They say only incumbents. Why Starling? Uh, so there's two surveys. There was Kantar that only oh, right, does fine. incumbents. There's which that does everybody, but which include things like your service and branch and your online banking and your telephone banking in the overall score. That and you yet get. RBS was still the worst, which I love, especially given our first story that RBS came kind of bottom of the ratings for a lot of things, which I think is is brilliant. If you look at the which one, um, the top three performers, there's actually very little in it. Yeah, it's, um, it's so First Direct got 84%, Starling got 83%, and Monzo got 82%. But I would point out that they both both of them scored zero for, uh, well, including First Direct, of course, scored zero for servicing branch. But they get quite a lot for um, telephone banking um, and quite a lot for online banking, which neither Starling nor Monzo um, have. Because haven't First Direct been winning top prize for customer experience forever? Since, many, for many forever. Years. I mean, I think what this testifies to is is something to do with the culture of the organization. Mm. That once you embed, it takes a lot of time to, or a lot, it takes effort to embed a culture of customer experience in an organization. And once you've done it, then it's self-replicating. And if you don't do it, then you end up like RBS, and it becomes extremely difficult to change your spots. A vicious circle almost. And, and, and so is there something here about... Um, the customer acquisition, though, because First Direct has, as you say, been topping this chart for quite some time. But have they been necessarily, has that turned into financial results for them? The, the, sorry. The story here is not uh, the chart ratings about banks. The story here is, you know, this the, the way in which they've defined their ranking and the fact that they've omitted people because they haven't signed up to the authorized push payment scam code. Re that... The real story, I think, the interesting thing about this, because there's ratings released all the time, and some of them are, you know, are pretty Mickey Mouse. But <laughs> you know, the 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 fact that Monzo hasn't signed up to the authorized push payment scam code is in itself interesting because, you know, begs the question. It why? begs the question why. And when you kind of dig into what that code is, it becomes a little bit clearer. So, what is authorized push payment scam? 
Well, I mean, I, there are people who know this much better than me, but I mean, I could direct you to my co-founder, mm. Simon Vance Kalina. Um, on his Twitter page, you will find a very thorough deep dive into what this um, into what this code uh, is and why you know digital banks didn't uh, you know don't want to sign up to it. It comes down to the fact that you know if you something like confirmation of payee through mm. through open banking will lead to less fraud because before you send the money you can you know who is the account holder so these kinds so of that's stuff. the issue with authorized push payments so authorized push payment is you um, perhaps call someone and you make them believe somehow that you are HMRC happens a lot at the moment or, or your, your, your their bank or your the electricity supply absolutely and somehow you convince them not somehow I mean no it's, so this could be a incredibly sophisticated yeah. phone call. it can be a vulnerable person it can be a sophisticated scam it could be anything yeah. mostly it is it is the vulnerable um, and uh, you convince them that they owe you you owe them, excuse me, you owe them money, um, and this is the account to which you should send it, and that it, that would they would then do a an authorized push payment from from their account. I, I've been deeply mystified by this story. David Birch has continually been tweet, tweeting and going, if the payment has gone to another UK bank, mm-hmm. then under KYC and AML regulations, that recipient bank knows exactly who the holder of the recipient bank, bank is, and you know who it is who stole the money. Yeah. Why don't you go after them and catch them? This should be easy. It shouldn't be the fault. I mean, obviously, the there are questions the as, to, as, yeah. as to who should be, as to whose responsibility it is to make a mistake like that. But why are these crimes continuing to to propagate? Without holding the perp- without catching the perpetrators, when if everything was working as it should be working, they should be easy to catch the day after. It also comes down to like whose responsibility it is for recourse. A bank going and telling someone, you know, going after someone for committing fraud, is tipping off. You know, unless there is a proper, in, you know, investigation into into something like this, there, there there are there are things that limit you know banks from from doing so. From my under, from my understanding. It gets murky because you've got fraud versus AML. So tipping off is more around AML, less around fraud. Okay. Um, so what you would have is CIFAS, uh, kind of a, well, you'd have um, confirmation of there being fraud across the account. You can then close that account and you can report it to CIFAS, which was, is a, a database, a nationwide database, um, which gives details of fraudulent um, accounts or individuals. Um, and that can be used as a reference in, in KYC. Um, so, yes, in theory, you do know who owns the account. You should have done everything in your power and, and reached certain standards to know who owns the account. Once the money's gone in there and gone out, you close it down, you realize that actually it was a different person and you'll be able to talk about using different identification and things like that. And actually, you don't know who it was at I all. I mean, to me, this is unacceptable. You know, so person A gets scammed by social engineering into wiring and into wiring money to the account of person B. Person B couldn't, in principle, open that account without providing strong, adequate KYC. Mm. They The money goes in, they whip the money out, they close the account down. The bank goes and looks at their KYC. Oh, look, the KYC is flaky. It was an unknown person. That's not okay. Mm-hmm. In the world today, it is perfectly feasible to ensure to a high level of to a high level of certainty that the that you know who opened a bank account. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, then then you are running a gigantic risk. And actually, I'm surprised that there has not been much more of a scandal. Yeah. That about- banks have not been able to track down the beneficiaries of these push payment well, scandals. Uh, and and uh, Div Birch, our good friend of the show, has been saying for a while, identity is the new money. Identity is the key to, to, to so much of this. And, and, and actually, the processes and controls around that. But it's interesting as well, stepping back from that, around why, therefore, um, Monzo has elected not to sign up to a code that is trying to, as it seems, prevent the scams in which somebody is calling you and then sort of saying, um, hey, please send me the money. Because if I log into my online banking and send you the money, it's gone out of my account then. And my bank's just like, well, you sent the money. You should have known who you were sending it to. And that's where the liability is traditionally sit. Like, I own the responsibility because I have pushed the money to that other point. Um, so it's it's really that responsibility at the industry level and how those banks interoperate and wasn't the code designed to try and solve some of that i i think i think it's it's yes it's designed to try and solve some of that but i also think it is a you know it's a it's a movement away from the other things that are that are um that look to be coming in through things like psd um regulation you know conf- like i mentioned before confirmation of payee you know the net result of a piece of technology like that you know in the, just in the business that i'm building right now 
told you I'd keep talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something like that would lead to a vast reduction in potential fraudulent um, applications. We, we we believe because, and and if this is a a secondary piece, which you know means that. Uh, larger in you know incumbents don't have to put the time and effort into building that type of infrastructure then you know overall the net the net industry is a loss rather than a rather than a gain so it's so a confirmation of pay being this really is your electricity mm-hmm. supplier that you're trying exactly, to pay exactly exactly or your landlord and that's the beneficiary state. matched with the account which yeah, is yeah. really interesting for us social engineering is very powerful placing the load onto the onto the customer um, you can place the responsibility onto the customer which is what a number of banks do but I used to when I when I was on the board of a payments regulator, the iron rule was follow the money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The crime, crime is a business. If you strangle the business model for that, it'll stop. Which means you don't have to protect customers against doing it. If you can make the criminal accountable, if you can follow them, then it's not going to work as a criminal modus modus, modus operandi, and they're going to go off and do something else. Yeah. So you can actually kill off the business model if you are reliable about finding out who the person who did this was, going after him, arresting him, and shoving him in jail. Mm. And I am mystified. I mean, it's just not that hard nowadays to use modern technology. I how people can set up accounts and sole traders and corporates and how we can verify that, if I'm honest. I told Once you, you start going into corporate accounts, I mean, there was a whole question there. I told you it was. Uh, I told you it was more interesting. You did. You nailed it. Um, <laughs> I and, got it. And, and, sp- and speaking of um, you know things that could be uh, interesting as well, a story from the BBC uh, about Apple Pay speeding up payments on the Tube. Um, this one was quite interesting because the Express Transit reduces the payment time for iPhone and Apple Watch users. And if you're listening in New York as well, I think you now have uh, Apple Pay on on the uh, subway there as well. Welcome to the um, 21st century. What's that? <laughs> Welcome to the 21st century. In finance, Ooh. in particular. Apple is. Has caught up with Android finally. Yes, hallelujah. Um, so the, the the feature does away with um, the face recognition and fingerprint scanning, um, and it's available on iPhone SE, 6S, and later models. Android Pay, of course, as you say, already offers a similar feature. But Apple Pay users can designate their City Mapper Pass instead of a bank card, um, and contactless pays for about 25 million journeys in and around London each week, according to the Evening Standard. Um, this is pretty straightforward, though. Right? It just feels like a, an upgrade in experience. It's very interesting because it's actually all about the degree of ceremony that people are willing to and expect to go through when they can transact different sorts of transactions. Mm -hmm. People have been talking a lot about frictionless payment experiences, and they say that a one or two second second face or fingerprint experience, that's a frictionless experience. In reality, it depends upon what you're doing. What Apple have acknowledged is that the one or two second experience is just too long when what you're trying to do is to go through uh, a gate. Is to go into, it just isn't quick enough. Yeah. So you've got to go faster. That Cause... cringeworthy moment when you get to the gate and your f- phone fails and there's 20 people behind you in rush hour. It's painful. And they're all looking at you like, oh, that's the I idiot. know, you're, you're the one. You're that one. <laughs> but, but when you make the payment, when you're on the tube and you're about to go, you've already, you don't even wait for the doors to open. So actually, when you put your whether it's a car, I still use an oyster because I'm old school, uh, mm-hmm. like a literally yeah, oyster car. In my day, how do you I was, was, I was, I was the hipster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I've gone retro. But the um, but when people actually tap, they're, they're they're walking straight through. Yeah. So then that sort of collision that they have with the barriers, and it's fantastic when That's it actually mortifying. happens. I mean, it's mortifying for the person, but it's fantastic if you're watching. And then it, <laughs> yes, but, but then it very quickly turns to aggression. So it's like it's like, it's you, like you anger. Feel, yeah, you feel like all the all the emotions like come out in one second. Only the tube does that. This is a very London-centric so conversation. We're saying that Apple Pay has basically but... solved social angst. Well, no, and... Android. I mean, Apple's just catching Android. up. But <laughs> <I've>... <laughs> yeah. What's interesting was that they were over-authenticating. They were over-securing They were over a transaction that didn't need securing. Yeah. I mean, they were, in, they were requiring you to, you to do a biometric authentication on a £2.90 transaction that involved you being able to travel across London, which was an excessive level of authentication for that kind of yeah. transaction. It's, it, it's funny how... You know, when like when Apple Pay came out, or when contactless even before before Apple Pay came out, how quickly you started to resent entering your PIN number, mm-hmm. and then when Apple Pay came out, how quickly you started to resent having to like fish your wallet out and like find your card and then pay, and now how much I resent tapping a button and having my face scanned because I can glide through a 
gate at TFL. But the psychology of this is important because there isn't the idea that that everything should take no time is, in our experience, wrong. People expect an appropriate level of ceremony for different sorts of transactions. When we were doing mobile payments, we found that people were very impatient if they wanted to spend five quid. But if they were spending 50 quid, it made them very anxious if it was instant and immediate. They, yeah. wanted to, they wanted a bit of ceremony to reassure them this that they were being looked yeah. after. That I think this is psychology properly. and the legitimate security that it, that comes with that as well, the, the multiple factors of authentication. I think this is where, on the other side of it, Apple has got it better than Android. Um, yes, that is on record. Oh I did say that. He said it. Oh. Wow. Can we, we, we need Cut to hear, guys. But, but the, the thing is, especially <laughs> post uh, strong customer authentication, Apple Pay above the contactless limit is something that you can absolutely use and is being used. And I think that the usage of Apple Pay is the real story here. So, you know, as of February 2019, 43% of Apple uh, of iPhone users use Apple Pay on a regular basis, and that number's rising. Like, they're a, they're a significant player in payments now, and quietly it's making up more and more of their results every quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, Apple you know, kind of the device sale monster maybe maybe losing its edge, but the services monster eating into financial services started to happen. Just top a wallet for me. I only use it. Just want to watch. Forty three percent of of iPhone users use Apple Pay. Sometimes the mm. real question is how much of their payments, what sorts of transactions. Yeah. You know, it's a great way of doing certain things. But you, you know, if you were going to spend eight hundred pounds. On, on something, I'm not sure that you'd kind of go, yeah, that's good, tap my finger, done. No, no, it's, but there's, there's you, just but you not do enough have ceremony. with, with uh, Apple Pay the ability to go to the next level of authentication and then to go through Face ID and then even to enter uh, additional security layers. So that's, that's in well, if there. You're on, if you're on Safari, I don't know who that one person is in the world who's, who's, who uses it, but the Apple Pay like integration through Safari is, you know, is, is pretty robust. And... You know, the customer experience is amazing. because It's you, you, then. It is me. It's me. I, I, no, it's sadly. You're so damn hipster. Look at you. <laughs> yeah, I'm using actually Firefox. So, uh, uh, oh, it's yeah. all about brave these days, my friend. That's no, the I'm browser a dog, dog of choice. Uh, let's get to the next story, because this one uh, is a pretty interesting one from Finextra. And Monzo have announced their U.S. CEO. And it's uh, they've actually hired Visa's former global head of payment products and platforms, TSNL, to uh, lead its push into the U.S. as its new CEO in, early in the new year. Anil has uh, 25 years of experience across Standard Chartered, City, and Cap One. And Anil will initially focus on hiring across product, ops, and tech, um, and major strategic initiatives, such as leading U.S regulatory engagement. We're back to that point. Um, he said, joining Monzo's US CEO, I'm delighted that I've been given the chance to be part of uh, a team building a bank on the future of the market as large, as exciting as the US. This is a big hire. I think it's awesome. I, I think it's great. Um, I've read a lot of things that really annoyed me about, well, should they be taking from traditional banking? It's such like, well done, Monzo hired a grown-up. You know what? Sometimes it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. You hire a grown-up who actually knows how the rails work, who actually knows what the problems are, who actually has the experience in it. I think a lot of people, a lot of companies are set up by some phenomenally bright people who have seen that there's a problem and go and try and fix it, but don't necessarily understand the depth of the issues or the real infrastructure operationally underneath that. The US is an incredibly complicated legacy payment rail. You live there, write a check for the first time in 25 years. It's painful. They've got a grown-up who actually has the experience, who knows what he's doing and can face off against regulators. I think it's brilliant. The regulatory comfort piece, I think, is significant, especially given how challenging the regulatory landscape can be in the US. It's huge. They still got a customer acquisition. One of the things that I, you know, I think a lot of people admire about Monzo is their attitude towards community-based growth. And, you know, the first... I think the the first hires in a location, you want to, you, you know, you you want them to be able to almost replicate what how the success happened in in um, you know in in the UK, and one of the things that I'm I'm I question is does the cultural um, you know the, the the way in which it was founded in the UK is hiring someone like that the same culture for the for the office in the US in order to grow that community. But the US I think your, market. Your, your, your two remarks are highlight exactly the key issue because on the one hand, America is an utterly different market from the UK, utterly different. So if you blunder in there going, well, it's just UK plus one, you will crash and burn. But I have experience. There is, it is enormously difficult to keep a US office bound to the mothership 
unless you have things that, t- that unless you have ties that the bind. cultural ties mm-hmm. because otherwise you get tremendous conflicts misunderstandings yeah. cha- issues are issues arising and distrust and uh, uh, so uh, what's uh, interesting about the the Montagos um, and they spent quite a bit of time hanging out in our US office and we were very fortunate to have them they camp out and most of them are you know expats but then looking to hire the people who can do exactly that um, and that know their way around so exporting the culture exporting what made it successful but being creative and recognizing that cultural gap on, that the US this, is so very different there's this view again that you can't hire from a bank into an innovative startup because anyone from a bank isn't going to be able to adapt it drives me nuts what is it that makes you I think I came from a bank right? so, so did I um, and, and so did a lot of people in Monzo and so did a lot of people in Starling and so but did the a lot view of people here is country. that you've taken from traditional and therefore the cultural element is going to be a struggle for him he's going to have to adapt I disagree I, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't that's, that's what I, I don't saying. think that's the question the real the interesting question is who else are they putting into America who yes. will mm. provide the high trust lifelike communications link uh, back that's to back to London I mean I in, in we've just we, we're just opening our US office we're putting employee number one mm. from I prove into the United States together with an extremely experienced US based mm. Uh, commercial guy. You have to put both of them together. And it'd be interesting to see who else. It's not just this guy who clearly knows the ropes there, knows the rails, as you and say. And maybe super who, innovative and super culturally but aligned. the question is, know. who else are they putting out there to make sure that when 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 uh, London is asleep, they know that that America is doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's how you make decisions when nobody else is there. And, and those guardrails that are sort of felt and understood that, be, that become really difficult. And you can absolutely have the attitude and aptitude and still come from a bank and still have the experience, um, but you also need some of the people that have felt the specific things that make your organization Have unique. they indicated where this headquarters is going to be? Vegas. I don't know. That was a joke. Because there was an enormous difference between five hours time difference from London mm-hmm. and eight hours time oh, difference. Yeah. It makes know. a gigantic difference. Are they going to be in, I thought I read somewhere they were going to be in second home in LA. I thought, it, I thought they, well, I think they're in LA. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether... They, they've yeah, they've got little patches in multiple places. I don't know if they've put firm, firm roots down yet. They're renting. I mean, look, put it this way: if they had actually, if they had hired somebody from either a startup in the states or someone who wasn't as experienced as this, I think they would be questioned for being immature in their hiring process. Mm-hmm. So I think actually, from a from a reputational perspective, uh, from a I suppose external marketing perspective. Um, I think this is a good hire. And this would have been a really difficult decision. Well, and they always had people in their UK office that were vastly experienced from banking, right? The deputy CEO um, for a long time was was a former banker. So, like, this isn't a new thing for them. But it is a huge bet. I mean, America always costs you five times as much as you thought it would, and it takes (laughs) up five times as much as your time. But it can make you five times more. Uh, (laughs) You can win all the battles. In technology, you can win all the battles you like in Europe, but the war is always won in America. Mm -hmm. Sage words. Um, speaking of people who've won lots of battles, uh, Roger Federer coins make mint. Oh, sorry, that, <laughs> that was, was awesome. Glossy. Uh, that was absolutely <laughs> glossy. <laughs> Silky smooth. Pro right there. Silky smooth. <laughs> Story comes from Quartz. Um, and on Monday, Switzerland's Federal Mint announced two sets of coins featuring the 38-year-old tennis champ. Uh, producer Laura had to do some, had to have something to do with this tennis fan thrown through. Oh, but this isn't the Royal Mint to get it. No. No, no, this is this is uh, <laughs> Roger Federer coin. show they're on. <laughs> um, so demand for the coin was so high that the number of pre-orders broke the Swiss Mint's online store. Apparently, we have millions of clicks on our web shop. Who has web shops? Um, and because of that, our shop is collapsing periodically, um, said Marius G. Hardiman, Swiss Mint's general manager in an interview with Quartz. We never thought that the surge of public interest would be this big. Uh, Swiss Mint intends to release up to 10,000, uh, sorry, 100,000 units of the 20 franc coins. Also plans to issue a 50 franc Federer coin next year. So I'm going to be honest, I read this and I was like, when ICO? Um, but uh, turns out, no, it's like physical coins are making a comeback. You just need yourself a tennis champ. Should have been a digital coin though, right? Mm. So, so maybe this is actually a very sophisticated uh, cybercrime to corner the market. That somebody <laughs> went on, bought, bought most of them, and then DDoSed the entire site so that nobody else could buy it and they'd corner the market. Mm, interesting stuff. The secondary market for Roger Federer face on metal is is very high. Yeah. The black market. The bla- yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that's the one. So do, do you think there's going to be a fronted coin anytime soon? God, no. Um, what, an actual coin coin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe like a ceremonial one. Yeah. Would your face be on it if there was? No. 
I think it would be, you want a nice face. You want like, you know. Roger Federer's face. Roger Federer. I would put Roger Federer's face on our coin. Absolutely. <laughs> I think. Well, we I learned something rem- today. <laughs> I remember, I actually remember being on this show ages ago and we were talking about who would release the next crypto coin. And I think it was like, it was when, back in the day when Snoop Dogg had his own coin. A DJ and, Khaled had his own. DJ Khaled had his own coin. And so. And I think we were talking about Will I Am being the next digital coin person, and I think it, I think I haven't seen any celebrities endorse things that are coins until Roger Federer. Would not this is going to be not. like a move back to physical money now? If everyone is Snoop Dogg and Will I Am are like, well, I want my face on it. Jay Z coin, yeah. Jay Z oh, dollars. A web shop is a web. Sorry, yeah. I was wondering that, like but I didn't Shopify want to ask. Yeah, I figure it's just an online web store. Like. So the Mint has an online. Web store. Yes, but it's called a web shop. But it's called a web shop. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I think it's like a semi-mistranslation, it's but so it's really, really nice. Oh, um, he's the first living person to appear on a Swiss coin. Yeah. What other brilliant Swiss celebrities are out there that could have been on it previously? <laughs> oh, I feel like I need to go to Dead Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> well, apparently, apparently, previous designs have featured animals such as deer, objects like the Swiss Army knife, and landscapes. And now Roger Federer. Well, I can Roger see why Roger, Roger Federer is a bit I more interesting than yeah. Does that make Roger Federer as good as the Queen? Mm, yeah, no, like, the, the Queen's coins always sell out. Like, people are using those day and day. <laughs> 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 She's on stamps. From the web shop. <laughs> <laughs> She's got great brands. Uh, yeah. She's got the Queen brand. just gets around. She's got a Netflix stamps. show. She's got a Netflix show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Federer well, hasn't got a Netflix show. I don't know. He doesn't. Well, I don't know. He might do. He, he might do. It's a matter of time. somewhere. <laughs> it's interesting that the Swiss think that Roger Federer, at this point, is the most famous Swiss citizen who has ever lived. Wow. Yeah. Are you going to counter that? I don't know. It's, it wasn't Paul, Dier- Paul Dirac Swiss. You know, yeah. come on, guys. <laughs> Keep up. Discover the new trainer. Keep going. The famous table. Yeah, that guy. Isn't, um, isn't the Large Hadron Collider Swiss? Yeah, half, that's half. The, oh, yeah. That's right. They could put half half of CERN on the... <laughs> CERN is round, right? Yeah. That would go great on a coin. This is my point. <laughs> that, would go low, that would look great on a coin. Uh, yeah, just like a CERN circle. on one side, Roggy on the other. Mm. Roggy. Yeah, we're, we're close. We're close pals. Me and Roggy. <laughs> Me and Dodgy Roggy. This is a sellout out success. <laughs> oh, th- this was amazing. Uh, I think that wraps up this week's news show. Uh, thank you so much to our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Jamie? Uh, uh, at rogidodgy.com. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at JC the Original, or as I said in the intro, you can head to fronted.xyz to see what we're doing. And you're releasing coins soon. And we're going to release Roger Federer <laughs> in, a, in a dramatic new <laughs> yeah. twist. In a FinTech Insider exclusive, there will be a coin with Roger Federer's face coming to everyone who gets their rent deposit fronted. <laughs> What's I feel like, link? No, I don't know. <laughs> we, we should point out that Jamie may or may not be uh, sort of saying that for comedic effect. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Andrew, how about yourself? So you can find out how to assure the genuine presence of uh, an, an online user using face verification by going to www.iprove, spelt I-P-R-O-O-V.com. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Andrew. And how about yourself, Olivia? Uh, Olivia Benesty on LinkedIn and Twitter. Brilliant. And yourself, Adam? Uh, Adam D8 on Twitter and 11fs.com. Of course. Do you have your own jingle? Alex, is he allowed to make his own jingles? Like, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, we can make jingles. So, uh, uh, sound editor Alex is like, we're going to make this happen. We're going to have an Adam jingle. Simon, what's your jingle? Simon, what's yours? What's your jingle? I I don't have a jingle. On the spot, come on. (laughs) In front of all of us. Get your jingle out. How dare you? How very rude. <laughs> it, it, it jingle all the way. It is Christmas. Uh, as for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter, uh, Simon at 11FS.com. Uh, what do you think of today's stories or weird, weird comments from Jamie? Uh, let us know on all social platforms. Uh, search Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. And don't forget, subscribe to the damn newsletter, people, uh, 11FS.com forward slash newsletter. Thank you for listening. Bye. <laughs> <Damn you. laughs> Ha, 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 ha.